Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. You may be seated as you are. Open your Bibles to Psalm 22, sorry, Psalm 122. And um, that will just be our anchor text for today, just that first verse of Psalm 122 that we said earlier in our call to worship. We're going to be a few different places there, so if you want to, uh, there are no version notes today. This is sort of a little fireside chat uh, for us as a church and uh, as the Lord speaks to us. Um, you might have uh, a marker or your finger ready over in Hebrews and uh, Ephesians, Revelation, uh, mainly Hebrews. We're going to turn, turn through that in, in just a little bit. Um, but, but what is a good sermon um, if it doesn't start with a quote by Justin Bieber? <laughs> Who claims to be a believer, and I, I, don't, I don't know otherwise, um, a couple years ago in an interview with some magazine somewhere, he said, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. If you go to Taco Bell, that doesn't make you a taco. Now, doesn't that sound like something that, that Justin Bieber would add to a theological conversation? And, and it's true in a sense. Of course, going to Taco Bell does not make one a taco. And, of course, simply coming to church does not make one a Christian. So it's, it's true in a sense. But it doesn't explain enough. Or as my, my brother Matt would say wherever he went, it's true. It's just not true enough. Is that him coming in over there? He could fill in the blank for me. A Christian without the church is a foreign concept to the Bible. A Christian who refuses to attend church and who rejects the body of Christ is a foreign concept to the Bible. So, yes, going to church doesn't make you a Christian, obviously. But, I think on the other side of that, we have to add, Christians go to church. Christians need the church. The whole idea of being in Christ means belonging to his family. When you were saved, you were saved individually and personally, and you must make that personal choice to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, absolutely. But once you make that choice and that, that personal decision to follow Jesus, it becomes very much an impersonal decision because you are grafted then into a family. You are brought into a body you are brought into the church. And that word, I'm going to remind you, simply means the assembly. You are brought into an assembly of people, a gathering of the redeemed people, built up in the faith, loving each other, reaching out to the world and our community around us. And that necessitates being together. It necessitates meeting together in faithful attendance. I say faithful attendance. Many of you could check that box off immediately. Now, I want to remind you today, we, the, I'm always about the ditches, right? We can, we can throw attendance away to church and say it doesn't matter at all. Or we can go on the other side and we can say that um, the, a sort of legalistic, traditionalist uh, view of church attendance is all that matters. In other words, we go to church simply because it's what we do. That's what my grandparents did. It's what my parents did. And by golly, it's what our family is going to do. Why do you go to church? I don't know. We just do. So we can fall off that side too. So when I say faithful attendance, I don't want you to hear just kind of rote, traditionalist, legalistic obedience to something and you don't know why. I want us to see this morning the privilege and the blessing it is to be with God's people. The privilege and the blessing it is to be here together. Why church attendance matters, or as I said in the sermon title, why go to church? Church attendance does matter. Church attendance is necessary. It is essential. Beyond mere duty and responsibility, which it certainly is, it is also a great privilege. 
Look once more at Psalm 122, verse 1. Familiar verse to most of us, especially in this context of going to church. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, in, of course, our redemptive historical lenses looking at Scripture, this is a a psalm about going up to the temple, about going to Jerusalem and praying for the holy city and worshiping with God's people there in the temple. But I want to remind you that the temple is not there anymore. And according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, God is building his temple right here with us. A dwelling place for God's spirit, Pam read, by the Lord's power. He's bringing us together as a dwelling place for his spirit. We are the temple of the living God. So yes, it meant something for God's people then, but it certainly means something for us now. I was glad when they said to me, or if you're still in the King James like I keep wanting to do, I was glad when they said, unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. When's the last time you felt that? about coming to worship God? When's the last time you woke on a Lord's Day Sunday morning and all the busyness of getting your kids ready or getting yourself ready or whatever it is you have to do, when's the last time you felt glad? That word glad or gladness there is not just a private sort of happiness in your spirit. It is an evident outward happiness. An evident outward joy and gladness starting within your spirit, but then flowing out to those around you. Again, this must flow beyond just mere cultural duty. This is what we do. This is what our family does. This is what we always do with this traditional practice. There is godliness in that duty. There is joy sometimes in that duty. But that joy doesn't sometimes come easily. When you know the touch of pain... Physically, emotionally, whatever it is. When you know a touch of suffering and death and loss in your life, how do you say, I am glad to go into the house of the Lord and to worship with God's people? It's not always going to be the first thing that comes to our mind on a Sunday morning, given the circumstances of our life that so ebb and flow every single day and every single week. This text is not asking us to come into God's presence and to come into God's assembly with a fake smile or some sort of mask. As if you just have to come to church and pretend to be happy to be here, even though your heart is broken or your body is broken or your mind is broken or your spirit is broken. He's not asking for fake. God is not asking for a mask here. What he is demanding of us is that despite all those outward circumstances, we find our joy and this spiritual supernatural gladness in God. Despite all the stuff that happens around us and to us and within us, we find our joy in God so that on the Lord's Day, we say, kids, get up. We get to worship God today with his people. Husband, get up. We get to worship God today with his people. Wife, get up. We get to worship God today with his people. My special word to you dads, your family will follow your lead. And that can be for good, or it can be for ill. You are teaching your children every Lord's Day what is priority for you and your family. You're teaching them, whether you know you're teaching them or not, by your example, by your priorities, by the things you set aside to be at church, you're showing them what matters most to you and what should matter most to them, and that will impact their children your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and generations to come, you are teaching them what matters every single day, but especially on God's day. They will follow your lead. So often it seems, I've said this before, so often it seems that we're looking for any excuse not to go to church. And it seems our priorities and our checklist and our calendars can make so much time for everything else to the expense of church attendance. Let me say this, as I've said many times before, church ought to be the reason you miss everything else. Amen. Church ought to be the reason you miss everything else. This is God's day. This is set aside for his worship. This is set aside for his people. So barring 
obviously just inescapable circumstances with work and kids' schedules. We understand those things. Barring those things that just prohibit you from coming, unless otherwise prohibited, this should be priority on God's day. And I want to stress that gladness today and why we should be glad to be here. Number one, I want to say something about the awesome privilege of worship. The awesome privilege of worship. The privilege we have to worship God is identified by those who are involved. Namely, the two parties. Who are the two parties in gathered worship? God and us. The creator and his creation. Let's set our minds first on the first subject I mentioned there, and that is God. The almighty creator and sustainer of the entire universe, let alone this tiny speck that we call earth, and let alone these, these tiny little creatures that Isaiah, Isaiah likens to grasshoppers, which we call human beings. God, the provider of all things, majestic in splendor, beautiful in his holiness, and his glory. And then let us consider man. Let us consider ourselves. Yes, the crown of God's creation, but David says a little lower than the angels. The crown of God's creation, but a creation nevertheless. Finite. Impure. Mortal. Creatures from the dust. And yet God creates us to know him. Unique among all creation is that that he put in mankind to be made in his image, to know him and to worship him and to love him. And God invites you to know him. He gives you revelation. He gives you creation and the glory all around you that testifies to his goodness. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 about how all the created things point us to the reality of the person and the very nature of God. But he gives us more, doesn't he? He gives us this special revelation of his word. Or he pulls back the curtain that is there because of our sin and our hard-heartedness and our unbelief. He shows us what all creation is trying to show us, but it can't because of our sin. He opens it up and he says, this is who I am. Know me. Love me. Worship me. A unique privilege to you as a human being that no other part of creation knows nor can understand. Listen, not even the angels. Genesis chapter 1, specifically verse 3, God creates everything by the sheer word of his power. Have you ever thought about that verse, how we have the creation narrative and how all the other myths and all the other legends of creation from the ancient world, you've got gods and goddesses and everything else doing crazy stuff to make appear what we call creation. And yet in verse 3 of Genesis, he simply says, let there be, and there is. And God said, by the sheer word of his power, all that is comes to be. And then we think about this appearance, or at least I do, of God to Job. Job, who's undergone this immense suffering at the hand of Satan by the command and the permission of God, by the way. And Job, who has begun to ask all these questions, why is this happening to me? How can you let this happen, God? This is unfair. This is unjust. What can I do? Won't you stop this suffering? Why are you doing this to me? At the end of the book of Job, when God finally appears in the whirlwind and speaks to Job, remember, Job, all right, put your big boy pants on. I've got some questions for you. Where were you when I created the worlds? Where were you when I set the stars in their course? Where were you when I hung the worlds on nothing? And in this revelation of who God is to poor Job, Job in Job 40 verse 5 gets the point, doesn't he? He says, I've spoken once, I'm not going to speak anymore. 
I put my hands over my mouth. Because Job comes to a realization of who he's dealing with. And though he's been asking questions the whole book, it just takes one series of questions from the Lord of hosts to put Job in his place. In Psalm 8, the one I just quoted about man being the crown of God's creation, a little lower than the angels. That's correct, but David, has, he asks the right question, doesn't he? Surveying the host of heaven and the moon and the stars and all the things that God has made, beholding the wonder and the beauty of God, what does David ask? In Psalm 8, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who am I that you're mindful of me? And so as we know who God is, and we know what God is, with the biblical authors, we come face to face with him. That proper response must come forth, either in silent fear, as did Job, or this sort of awestruck wonder, as it did with David. We cannot understand who God is and be left unaffected in our inner person. And then to know that this creator God calls us in to be his family. That he calls us in to be his children. And not only that, he calls us into himself to worship him and to love him. He calls us into his presence where he speaks to us. That we, poor, finite creatures, would be invited here to this. To sing to, to pray to, to speak to, to hear from God. And let me just say a little word about the singing. I, um, since we've been up here on the, the perch, we get a bird's eye view of everybody. And while I'm not judging anybody, I can see you. And, <laughs> and as we're singing, we can, we can see who's singing. I want to tell you something, and I've told you this before, that when the Bible commands us to do something, when Pastor Matt tells you to sing, it is more than just a suggestion, because that is not Pastor Matt's command. That is the Bible's command. And so when God tells you to sing, and you stand there with arms crossed and feet planted and mouth closed, you are not disobeying Pastor Matt. You are not refusing to participate just because you don't like the style or the song or whatever it is. You're disobeying God. And you're refusing to worship him in the way he's told you to worship him. And so part of that gladness must come out. It must. And I'm just going to challenge you this morning that if you don't know that gladness... And you don't understand what this means to be glad and to sing and to pray and to participate and to be here and to be present and to listen and to learn and to love God and to worship him. You don't know him. You may have said something or done something and checked the box. You might have even been ducking in that pool right up there by Pastor So-and-so. But you don't know Jesus. Because to know Jesus is to know this gladness and to sing to him and to worship him and to love him and to pray to him. And to be humbled that he would speak to you in his word. When we have our call to worship at the beginning of worship services, you'll notice I always say, let's hear God's call to worship. And then we read scripture, don't we? Because it's not, again, this Pastor Matt's invitation for you to worship, though I do extend that to you at that time. That's the words of God. Inviting you to worship. And so when we read this morning, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Yes, those are the words of the psalmist, but they're the inspired words of God, aren't they? And so it's God putting those words in the psalmist's mouth. And as we say them, it's God reciting those words through us, inviting you, calling you in to worship him into his sanctuary. Let us go and worship God. This is no mere human invitation. It is a divine 
invitation. And if we'll just stop and consider the magnitude of this privilege, it's almost unthinkable. I I could keep talking about it all day, and you know me. I, I could keep talking about it all day. This is an immeasurable privilege. It's almost unthinkable, unspeakable, that God invites us to himself to worship. And isn't that reason to be glad? Isn't that reason to rejoice? And so the question comes to us, does the notion of coming to church cause joy? Men, husbands, fathers, mothers, parents, grandparents, church members, guests. I would say today, consider God, then consider yourselves, and then consider this invitation. And then maybe your heart will ring out like Psalm 84, verse 10 says, One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. That is the joy and the gladness that God desires from us. Listen, and he invites you into and offers you in corporate worship. Well, now let's consider the immeasurable cost of worship. It's a great privilege. It's an awesome privilege. And it's an awesome privilege because of who God is and who we are and this great invitation he's given us. But it's also a great privilege because of this immeasurable cost and, and you might immediately be thinking of a cost to you, a sacrifice you've made to be here, giving up a work day or uh, schoolwork or, or whatever it is that you could be doing. You say, of course it's a great cost. I've sacrificed so much to be here, and I come here and I have to give money and I have to give of myself and I have to serve. That's a great cost. I'm not talking about the cost to you. I'm talking about the immeasurable cost of worship that God paid. You see, sin, the entrance of the fall, God created Adam and Eve to know him, to love him, and to worship him. And then sin comes in and destroys that and shatters, bringing separation between mankind and God so that no longer do they walk with God in fellowship and worship and love and submission and obedience. Now in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, God comes into the garden and they do what? They run and they hide outlining this fractured, shattered relationship between God and his creation. And yet, even then, in that moment, we see the mercy and the grace of God, don't we, in that he comes looking for them. Adam, where are you? And even when they realize they're naked and they realize what's happened and God has condemned them, what does he do except kill an animal and cover their nakedness and their shame? And there in sort of an embryonic form, we see the sacrificial system foreshadowed. And it won't come into full fruition until we get to the book of Leviticus and the priesthood and the tabernacle and later the temple with the actual sacrificial system and the law of Moses. But there we see it in a foreshadowing, right? That God kills this animal to cover the nakedness and the shame of these creatures. Right there from the very beginning, we see God makes a way. But it costs something. It costs a life. It costs blood. It costs judgment and punishment. And even once we get to Leviticus and the tabernacle and later the temple, even when we get there, we see that this problem with the sacrificial system is even though it's wonderful and great and God made a way, yes, it's still imperfect. And it's supposed to be imperfect because it's tainted by the same thing that taints every single human being. And that is the problem of our sin and our impurity. It's no accident that it's imperfect. It was never meant to take away sins. It points to something bigger. And the whole Old Testament points us through the prophets and all the writings and all the history and all the law. It points us not to the sacrificial system. But it points us to the one ultimate sacrifice that will be made, not simply to cover sins, but to remove them forever. The prophets longed for this. They pointed to this. And of course, we come to the New Testament and we see it in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we have this promise, you will call his name Jesus. Why would we call his name Jesus? Why must we do that? Why must we name him a name that means the Lord saves? Well, because he will save his people from their sins. You'll call his name Jesus because he, unlike the sacrifices, will actually save his people from their sins. All right, if you're ready in the book of Leviticus, I'm sorry, I'm getting excited about Leviticus, the book of Hebrews, let's turn over there just for a moment. Hebrews chapter 2, let's start there. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 10. Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's Jesus, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That's Jesus calling us his brothers. And he says to us, I will tell of your name, God, to my brothers, my people, in the midst of the congregation. This is, this is the, the mouth of Jesus. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is, Jesus became flesh. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, that's me and you in Christ. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in our flesh in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered and was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see the great cost here? God, in order to bring many sons to glory, sends forth the Son clothes him in flesh, and subjects him to the cruelty and the torture of the cross. Why? So that Jesus could appear before his Father and say, Here we are, I and the children you have given me. Here we are. Here's our great high priest leading us into the presence of God and saying, Here we are, God, to worship you. Look over at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. There's Jesus again, our great high priest, bringing us with confidence into the presence of God. Look over at Hebrews chapter 7 beginning in verse 23. Hebrews chapter 7 beginning in verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. There's the the imperfection of the sacrificial and the priesthood system. But he holds, that is Jesus, his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You see what the author is saying? That system was good. The priesthood was good. The sacrificial system was holy and righteous, but it was imperfect because of sin and death. But now one has come 
who has offered once and for all the payment for our sins, who now stands forever in the presence of God so that we can with confidence come into the presence of God, but it came with the cost of his blood. It came at the cost of his life. One more, and this is just one book here to the right, the book of 1 Peter. Turn there with me. 1 Peter chapter 1. Two books to the right, I'm sorry. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There's the price. There's the cost. For this one to be made our high priest, for him to bring us into the presence of God, it didn't just happen. The price had to be paid. The cost had to be met. The wrath that was due our sin had to be poured out. And the Bible teaches us it was poured out on Jesus so that he paid the price for us. And so as we consider the cost of what we do here together, maybe we'll begin to see the great opportunity and the great invitation and the great privilege and the great grace that this is for us to be together. It was not free. It was not cheap. It cost the very life of the Son of God. We live in a culture and a society, and I don't care what generation you're in, it applies to all of us, it seems, that is so prone to expect everything, to appreciate nothing, and to still demand more. But what if the cost of the thing we're talking about was the death of the Son of God himself? What if that was the cost of what we're talking about? And the follow-up question is, wasn't that the cost? And one more question. Didn't God pay it? How can we not then worship? If he has done that for us to do this, how can we not worship? One of the songs we sing by the, Keith and Kristen Getty, My Wealth is Not in What I Own, one of the verses says this, Two wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness. Surely that is a great mystery for us sinners who are not worthy of the grace of God. That's why it's called Grace who are not worthy of the mercy and forgiveness of God, who are not worth the price that was paid for us. You understand that? We're not worthy of that. And yet in the fact that God sent Jesus while we were still sinners to die for us, he makes us worthy. Our worth is not ours. It doesn't belong to us. Our worth is given to us by the God who paid the ultimate price for us. And in that worth, we don't see how great we are. We see how great he is. And we see how great the cost was paid for us to be able to come into his presence and to worship him together. And lastly today, I want to point us to the eternal picture of worship. Okay, you say, okay, that's all great and that's all true. I believe in God, I believe Jesus, I believe the price he paid, I, I've accepted all that. But, pastor, worship can be individual. Worship can be private. Worship can be personal. God, that must come from you personally in your heart. Yes, worship can be personal. Worship can be individual. Worship can be private. In fact, we talk about being, being led in a lifestyle of worship that brings honor to God. We're living sacrifices every day to him. But I also want to say that is not the primary picture of worship in the Bible. 
that is expected of us. Paul says it's your reasonable act of worship to live every day in worship to God, personally, privately, individually, in our minds, with our bodies, with our actions. But it is not the primary picture of worship we see in the Bible. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Pam read for us earlier. Ephesians chapter 2. Turn there with me if you want to. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Hear what Paul says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, what is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promises, having no hope and without God in the world. That was who you are apart from Christ. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's that immeasurable cost, the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Watch this. Who has made us both one. and Has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, specifically, Paul is speaking of this this chasm between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers and the divisions that wanted to settle in there. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not the church. You're, You're getting mixed up with Jew and Gentile distinctions again. You are one body in Christ. You are one man in Christ. And through his blood, he's brought reconciliation to the church, no matter if you're Jew or Gentile. So that's, that's the, the background here. But look at verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and preached peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens like you were apart from Christ. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household. Notice the corporate language. Saints with household. Verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. The gospel at its core, yes, is about our reconciliation to God. Where there was that great separation because of sin, by the blood of Christ he brings us near to God. He brings us to God as our high priest. But he doesn't just reconcile us to God. There's a horizontal aspect to this, too, in that we are reconciled to each other. And just as much as it costs the blood of Jesus to reconcile us to God, what could overcome the kind of divisions that so plague sinful humanity except also the blood of Jesus? And that's what Paul says here. He shed his blood so that you might be reconciled to God. He shed his blood so that you might be reconciled to each other, to each other, with one another, together. And he uses that word again and again and again, together, 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 together. I remind you again that this word we call church just means assembly, a gathering of people. And there is no church where there isn't a gathering of people. That's what it means. It comes to us from the Old Testament idea of Israel being the assembly, Israel being the congregation. And when you come into the New Testament, they don't flinch in calling the church that same thing, the assembly of God's people, the congregation of God's people. And so something mystical and supernatural and eternal happens in this gathering. The Old Testament assembly always looked back to one special assembly. If you were with us through Leviticus and then in Exodus, you know what this assembly is, don't you? The Old Testament people looked back to one assembly, and that was at the foot of Sinai when God's glory appeared on the mountain and they were gathered as his people to hear his voice, to receive his law, to be brought into covenant with him. Every single worship service since then, including this one, has pointed us back there to when God said, you are my people. And I am your God. I think it's the last place I'm going to have you turn. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 12. 
And let's see what the reality of that is for us. You say, well, I don't have Sinai. I don't see the mountain. I don't see the glory of God. What does all that have to do with me? How are we the assembly of God in the same way that they were if we don't have that, that Sinai experience? Look at Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. I want you to hear what the author of Hebrews says here. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You see, what is he talking about? Sinai, the appearance of God's glory. When they were terrified and they asked him not to speak and no one could touch the mountain or they would die. The author of Hebrews says, as grand and glorious and awesome as that was, you haven't come to that. And so we might be thinking, well, that's kind of a bummer. That was kind of an awesome sight, I think, God's glory on Sinai. But you haven't come to that. Verse 22, notice the word but that shows us that this is upping the ante here. You don't come to something less than Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We come to that assembly. As grand and glorious and awesome as Sinai was, it is not that. And as awesome as Sinai surely was, I want to tell you this morning, it might not feel like it, you might not think it, but the reality is that what we're doing here today together is better than what they had at Sinai. Because we don't come to a mountain and fire and storm and all this that may be touched. The author of Hebrews says we come to a festal gathering of angels and all the saints that have gone on before us. We come to God and we come to Jesus Christ who is the mediator of a better covenant. We come to that assembly as citizens of that kingdom to worship God in this room together. That's what we're doing here today. Nothing less than that. In the book of Revelation, John is caught up by the Spirit and he sees an assembly in the throne room. And as we look around the throne room in Revelation 4 and 5, we see more than just John and the throne of God. We see multitudes. We see myriads of people of saints and angels gathered around the throne of God. And I want to tell you this morning, that is more than just some future thing that will happen. I want to tell you this morning, that is going on right now. That vision of the throne room in glory is happening right now. And I want to tell you something even better. What we do here today is joining in with that. We are joining in with that, coming into the very throne room of the worship of heaven. Why? Because the God of creation summons us to himself. Because Jesus paid the cost to make it possible. We worship there. One more passage, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us exult and rejoice and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Verse 9, And the angel said to me, Write these things. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. You see this? This is how it all ends. A great supper. But it's not just a table for one. It's a table with all of God's people of all time gathered around the Lamb of God. 
And I just want to be frank with you this morning, if I can be. No golf course, no walk on the beach, no forest, no hunting trip. As grateful as I am for live stream during COVID and afterward, and as grateful as I am that those who are sick and shut in and can't be here can use that to worship with us, no live stream service, no TV can replace this. This is a picture of that. And you don't get the picture of the gathering, the assembly, the saints, the body, the eternal supper that we will be with. You don't get that sitting at home looking at your computer. You can't have that listening on the radio by yourself. You can't have that out in the parking lot somewhere, in a golf course, or wherever it is that you deem the appropriate place to worship God. It must be together with God's people. Because this is what eternity will be. Have you ever considered as we stand on Sunday morning and sing, as you look across the congregation at someone you know or maybe someone you don't know, that as we sing and as we pray or maybe as you look around right now and we listen to the word of God, you ever thought about the fact that that person will be there with you a billion years from now singing songs to the Lord? Seeing the Lord face to face. You ever thought about that person across the sanctuary, up in the balcony, down on the floor, as you leave, and you don't know them face, you don't know their names, you don't know who they are, maybe you do, that they'll be there with you a billion years from now, around the throne of God. You can't get that if we're not together. I wonder today if you've ever considered this eternal view of worship then it's more than just right here and right now. I want to ask if you've ever longed for heaven in the presence of Christ. You say, yes, I want to go to heaven. Yes, I want to be with Jesus. But you treat corporate worship flippantly and mindlessly and passionless. Maybe a darker question here today that will be helpful for us, though. Do you think heaven is yours and yet disregard the gathering of what heaven is by disregarding worship here? Does that really compute? If heaven is your home and that's what heaven is, but you reject it here, is heaven really your home? I want us this morning to recapture this eternal picture of worship, to rejoice in this invitation that we have in all eternity. Listen to me this morning. You don't have to like me. You don't have to like my preaching. You don't have to like our music, our programs, our activities. You don't have to like nothing about our church. Here's the good news for you. It's not about any of that. It's not about whether our style matches your preferences or whether my preaching style matches what you want or what you like. That doesn't matter at all. This isn't about me. This isn't about our programs or our music. This is about a glorious, sovereign God who invites you to himself. This is about a merciful God who paid for this with his son. And this is about a God who summons us into this place, into the very throne room of heaven to worship him. Unbelievers, you don't know this this morning. Oh, but I want you to. I want you to know that you are worshiping something. You might think yourself to be an atheist, an agnostic, someone who's rejected religion and God, and you say, I'm not a worshiper at all. You are a worshiper. The question isn't if you worship, but what or who you worship. And I just want to tell you that at the end of whatever you claim to worship, it's just yourself. If you'll turn to Jesus and you repent of your sin and you'll turn to him in faith, you can know these promises through the true and living God, through the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, and you can be numbered today by faith amongst that assembly that is already enrolled in heaven. Believers this morning, this is for you too. I want you to rediscover the wonder of worship. I want you to rediscover why do we go to church? Why is this what we do? Because here is a glimpse of the majesty and the glory of the God of the universe 
And as we do this together, we are beholding him on his throne, reigning over all things in power and glory. We are beholding the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world for sinners like you and me so that we could sing out to him, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And then I want you to look around today, maybe as we sing our closing song and get a glimpse of eternity. But this isn't just about you. It's about that assembly around the throne right now that we are joining with now and that we will one day join forever. Sing that way. Pray that way. Listen that way. Give that way. Be faithful that way. This is bigger than you. This is bigger than me. It's bigger than right now. Know what it is and step into it together. Let's stand and let's just close before I pray by saying that piece of that psalm together, Psalm 121, 122, verse 1. Would you just say this with me? I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. God, we thank you for this immeasurable privilege, this awesome call to be in your presence, to be with your people. God, help us not to forget the great cost of what we do here today. Help us in looking to Jesus to see the price that was paid, to see the majestic God that we serve. Help us to look around and to see all the people that you brought into your family, different from us, older, younger, from different places, different walks of life, maybe even different languages. Would you bring us together to worship you and one day we will gather around your throne in perfect harmony and unity forever to praise and worship you and the lamb that was slain for us. Help us by your spirit to step into that right now. We don't have to wait for that day. We can do it every Lord's Day together as we worship you together, as you build us up in you together. God, cause us now to look to Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, and our true worship leader here today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806 935 5604. We'll see you next time.